0: Imagine a film director in the 1970s. He has just directed a small horror film that was very successful. One morning, he's sitting in his bathroom, hungover from celebrating the night before when the phone rings. Someone who he doesn't know offers him $1 million to make a kind of movie that's never been made before, a superhero movie. For the next two years, it would consume his life. Today, I have the story of Richard Donner... Alexander and Ilya Salkind and the making of Superman the movie on the 180th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday. It's time for coffee and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. How are you all doing today? For me, it's been a rough couple of weeks as we at the Kelly household lost two pets. We had to say goodbye to a dog and a cat. It was sort of rough, but we're getting over it. On the brighter side, we're finally having some fantastic weather here in Chicagoland. So earlier in this week, I decided to do something different, to take a subject I knew nothing about and write a podcast episode while I learned about the subject. Rather than being a usual Coffee with Jeff story, the story would be about me learning something interesting. You know, it was one of those, why don't I change it up this week and try something else? The problem was there was just too much research involved to get it done in time for today's story. There was no way I was going to get it done. Then I remembered hearing Richard Donner on Gilbert Godfrey's Amazing Colossal podcast in which he told the detailed story of working on the 1978 film Superman. And I found it fascinating. I began to look into it some more and found out there were a lot of great stories involved with the making of that movie. So much so that now I've turned it into a two-part episode. So if you don't care about the making of this 1978 film, you can come back in about a month and I'll have something unusual to talk about. So part one will be up to the point where they hit the editing stage of the first Superman movie, and then in part two, we'll go through its release, and then on to Superman 2, 3, 4, and Supergirl. It all ties together. Trust me on this, It's it's an interesting tale. So why don't we get into it? the story of the first real superhero film.
1: This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash PsyCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Because of the wisdom and compassion of Jorel because he knew the human race had the capacity for goodness he sent us his only son his name is Kal-El he will call himself Clark Kent but the world will know him as Superman this year Superman brings you the gift of flight Superman, the movie.
0: Our story begins with two men, Alexander Salkind and his son, Elias Salkind. Alexander was the son of a film producer, and he now himself was a producer of films in France. He produced Orson Welles' version of The Trial in 1962, one of the only films after Citizen Kane that Welles was able to make without studio interference. Welles considered The Trial his best work. In 1972, the father and son team, along with Pierre Spangler, began producing a film version of The Three Musketeers with Richard Lester directing. An interesting note, Lester originally had the idea of casting the four Beatles, John Paul, George, and Ringo. After all, he had directed them in A Hard Day's Night and Help. But I guess in 72 they were still going through their breakup and it didn't work out for one reason or another. Lester hired novelist George MacDonald Frazier to write the screenplay. Frazier wrote a four-hour treatment of Alexander Dumas' book. The Salkinds originally envisioned a three-hour epic with an intermission in the middle, but with this longer script, it was decided to make the story into two films, The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. The problem was they didn't bother telling the cast. At the premiere, the cast wondered why they only saw half the story, but then at the end there was a trailer for a sequel, which was, in fact, the other half of the film they had just made. The cast and crew were shocked and thought, rightfully so, that they should be paid for two films, not one. Eventually, this wound up in a lawsuit. Because of this, the Screen Actors Guild now requires all future actors' contracts to stipulate just how many films are being made. It is known as the Salkine Clause. It was during the making of the Musketeer films that Ilya Salkine came up with the idea of making a film based on the comic book superhero, Superman. Now, with all these superhero films being made these days, it might not seem like a big deal. But back in the early 1970s, making a superhero film was unheard of. No one thought a superhero film was a good idea. I mean, before Superman... There was only one that I can think of, and that was the campy 1966 Batman film based on the TV show. To many, a big-budget Superman film was a crazy idea. But to the Salkines, this could be something special, and they didn't want to do it cheaply. They wanted it to be on a grand scale. And to do this on an epic scale, they felt they needed a big-name writer to write the story, and they picked one of the biggest. Mario Puzo, writer of The Godfather, agreed to write the screenplay and the director had to be just as big. They asked Francis Ford Coppola, William Freakin, Richard Lester, Peter Yates, and even Sam Peckinpah. Consideration for Peckinpah was dropped when he produced a gun at a meeting with Ilya. George Lucas was offered the job, but was busy with Star Wars. Ilya suggested Steven Spielberg, but his father wanted to wait to see how this big fish film he was making turned out. When Jaws became one of the biggest blockbusters in history he was offered the job but had already committed to close encounters of the third kind eventually James Bond director Guy Hamilton was hired to turn Puzo's 500 page script into a film next they felt they needed a big A-list actor to really get the ball rolling to get studios interested And with his Academy Award winning role in The Godfather just a few years earlier, they turned to Marlon Brando. Brando signed on to play jor with a salary of $3.7 million and an amazing and crazy 11.75% of the box office gross. Considering how little Brando is actually in the film, this is just insane. He also had it in his contract that all his scenes had to be filmed in 12 days. With a script by Mario Puzo, Guy Hamilton directing, and Brando as its star, they were able to get the interest of a major studio, Warner Brothers. But Warner Brothers wasn't all that confident that a superhero film would work, so they agreed to a negative pickup deal. This basically means the producers agreed to pay for the film out of their own pocket with the studio agreeing to purchase the film for a fixed price once it's done. If I understand all this correctly, it makes the studio not responsible for the film going over budget, and if the film tanks, they could point fingers at the production company. All seemed to be going well until they looked for a place to shoot the film. This is where they were hoping to save money by finding the cheapest place they could, and that turned out to be Italy. But it seemed Italy had an outstanding warrant for Marlon Brando. Sexual obscenity charges from when he made Last Tango in Paris. The production was forced to move to England. This presented a problem for Guy Hamilton who was having his own legal problems. He was wanted in England for tax evasion. It became a choice between Brando or Hamilton and, of course, Brando won. A new director was needed. The 1976 supernatural horror film The Omen had just come out and it was a huge success. The Salkines looked to its director, Richard Donner. Donner had been an actor and then a TV director and now successfully made the transition into directing movies. According to Donner on Gilbert Godfrey's Amazing Colossal podcast, he was sitting in his bathroom on Sunday morning, totally hung over from the night before when the phone rang. A man, who Donner described as having a Hungarian accent, said, This is Alexander Salkind. Do you know who I am? Donner replied, No, I don't know who you are. It's Sunday morning. Whatever you're selling, I don't need it. Just as Donner was getting ready to hang up, Salkind explained that he was a producer and listed the films he had made. Donner recognized the film and said yes, he had seen them. He finally asked, What do you want from me? Salkine responded by saying, I'll pay you a million dollars to direct Superman. At first, Donner thought this had to be a joke from a friend of his that was with him the night before. But it wasn't. Salkine explained the whole thing, Brando, the two films, and such. But it was the million dollars that really interested Donner. At the time, a million dollars to direct a film was unheard of. Donner, while still sitting on the throne in the bathroom, wrote the whole thing out on the back of a small business card. It said, Superman, a million dollars, Brando, and then a few other things. He still keeps that card today. Donner accepted the offer and the script arrived at his house within an hour. He said the script was so big he almost had a hernia lifting it out of the box. After he finished reading it, his first thought was, that these guys are killing Superman. He described it as a parody on a parody that was destroying any heritage and respect that we all, as kids, had for Superman. He described a bit in which Superman was flying around looking for Lex Luthor, checking every bald man he laid his eyes on. He eventually comes across Telly Savalas as Kojak. Kojak turns to Superman and says, "'Who loves ya, baby?' The whole script was full of silly, campy jokes, he said. Donner had a love for Superman and knew this would not do. Later, in a Making of Superman documentary, Ilya Salkind said most of those jokes were in just for fun and they were never intended to be filmed, but whatever. The thing is, the film was ready to go into production, so in a panic, Donner called his friend Tom Mankiewicz, the son of Academy Award-winning screenwriter Joseph Mankiewicz, and the nephew of Herman Mankiewicz, the man who had written the screenplay for Citizen Kane. He hoped Mankiewicz would rewrite the script for him. At first, Mankiewicz showed no interest, but Donner convinced him to come over and talk about it. In the box that the script came in was a cheap Superman costume. Donner said he did five push-ups, smoked a doobie, then put on the Superman outfit. As Mankiewicz got out of the car in his driveway... Donner ran up in the costume and he said Mankiewicz jumped back into his car. Mankiewicz said of the original script, It was well written, but still a ridiculous script. It was 550 pages. I said, You can't shoot the screenplay because you'll be shooting for five years. And Donner said, That was literally a shooting script and they were planning on shooting all 550 pages. You know, 110 pages is plenty for a script, even for two features. That was way too much. Donner told Mekowitz, if you can make the love story real, the rest will fall into place. So Mekowitz basically wrote a whole new script. But the Writer's Guild refused to give him credit, so Donner would later sneak in a credit called Creative Consultant into the opening titles before anyone noticed. This really pissed off the Writer's Guild. But now, with a good script, Richard Donner would begin a two-plus-year odyssey trying to get this film made. Now, the original plan by the Salkinds was to have all A-list actors in the film, even for the part of Superman. For the role, they considered Robert Redford, Burt Reynolds, Sylvester Stallone, Paul Newman, James Caan, James Brolin, Lyle Wagner, Christopher Walken, Nick Nolte, John Voight, Chris Christopherson, Charles Bronson, and Perry King. They auditioned Bruce Jenner and Patrick Wayne. They even offered Wayne the role, but he dropped out after his dad, John Wayne, was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Both Neil Diamond and Arnold Schwarzenegger lobbied hard for the role, but were ignored. They also auditioned over 200 unknown actors. We found guys with fabulous physiques who couldn't act or wonderful actors who did not look remotely like Superman. Tom Mankiewicz later remembered... The search became so desperate that producer Ilya Salkine's wife's dentist was screen-tested. Casting director Lyle Stallmaster suggested a young and skinny Christopher Reeve. Donner first rejected the idea, but after an exhaustive search, he finally agreed to a screen-test. Donner and the producers were blown away with Reeve, but told him he'd have to wear a muscle suit. Reeve didn't like this and convinced them that he would go on a highly intensive exercise program. He did this with future Darth Vader, David Prowse. Now, Marlon Brando was paid $3.7 million and Gene Hackman $2 million for the film, but Reeves received a huge $250,000, and that was for both films. Now, one of the things Donner asked when he was first hired was, how were they going to make Superman fly? Because he knew if the flying looked bad, the movie wouldn't work. And what they showed him didn't look much better than the old George Reeves 1950 TV show. Donner was horrified. A very expensive research project began by the special effects people to try to figure out how to convincingly make it look like a man could fly. They spent millions of dollars and many months trying to figure it out. They tried wires, dummies fired from cannons, even gliders with capes. Eventually they worked it out with various techniques. In fact, they were so successful that the tagline for the film became, You'll believe a man can fly. When production began on March 28, 1977 at Pinewood Studios, Richard Donner introduced the cast and crew to a new word, verisimilitude. It would be the mantra for the entire production. What it means is the quality of seeming true or having the appearance of being real. In other words, if I understand it correctly, Even though a film is a fictional story, it should seem real to the audience. He wanted it to be the goal of everyone who worked on the film. Superman was probably the most expensive and complicated shoot ever attempted at the time. After all, they were shooting two films at once. When they were on the set, they filmed all the scenes for each movie at the same time, jumping back and forth between film one and film two. And since films are done out of order, it's hard to keep track of one film, but two? That's crazy. And there were 11 units filming simultaneously in three continents with a crew of over a thousand people. And it was Richard Donner who had to keep track of it all. As Donner later said, it got to be a bitch. But it was Donner who kept it all together, and the cast and crew loved him for it. Margaret Kidder, who played Lois Lane, said about working 14 hour days. The only thing that made them tolerable was knowing Dick Donner was working twice as hard as you were, getting less sleep than you were, if that was possible, and he kept you laughing. Donner said, That's your responsibility as a director. You have to generate energy for you and everyone else. And if it's artificial, you can't let them know it's artificial. Gene Hackman said of Donner, Dick has that rare quality of being able to instill in actors a sense of fun, a sense of... This is your project, you know. This is yours. Let's see what you can do. But Dick's strong personality and sense of fun and love, not only for the project but for the actors, makes working with him a pleasure. And Reeves said, Dick Donner is the biggest kid on the block, and his sense of playfulness really gave this film its magic. Another man who was not only loved by everyone in the cast and crew But also had as much or even more to do with the wonderful quality of the film was cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth. According to everyone involved, he was amazing. His other films included Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey and Bob Fossey's Cabaret, in which he won the Academy Award. Unsworth died before the film was released, and the film was dedicated to him. One bright spot in all his grueling work was... The first time they went to see the dailies and saw Christopher Reeve fly. No one could believe it. To them, he was actually flying. It looked so real. Donner said everybody was so happy there wasn't a dry eye in the house. While the cast and crew became a family while working on the film, there were two people who weren't happy with what was going on, especially with Richard Donner, and that was the Salkines. They were worried that Donner was going way over schedule and over budget. Donner said, however, he never got a schedule or a budget. Creative consultant Tom Makowitz reflected, Donner never got a budget or a schedule. He was constantly told that he was over schedule and budget. At one point, he said, Why don't you just schedule the film for the next two days and then I'll be nine months over. But it was taking a long time and costing a lot of money. It was supposed to shoot for about 7 or 8 months, but shooting lasted almost 19 months. I would guess that the project was bigger than anyone anticipated. These days when an effect is needed, you go to an effects company that specializes in the type you are looking for. Just look at the amount of effects people who work on an Avengers film. Their names go on forever in the credits, but in 1978 there were no special effects companies. Every effect you see in the film had to be invented while in production, and all that cost time and money. Eventually, the relationship between Donner and the Salkinds got so bad they refused to talk to each other. The Salkinds began to panic and bought in their old friend Richard Lester, director of the Musketeer films, as a temporary co-producer to mediate the relationship between Donner and themselves. In reality, it is thought... Lester was brought in in case it turned out that they needed to fire Donner or he quit. They would have another director standing by. Interestingly, Lester told Donner that he only agreed to come on board because the Salkinds agreed to pay him the money they still owed him for the Musketeer films, money that he had been trying to get from them for years. Donner said of this period, It was a lonely period, it was a long period, it was tiring, it was exhausting. But I had taken on a project of making Superman and damn it, nothing was going to stop me. Now at the same time, Warner Brothers was liking what they were seeing, so they began to invest more and more money into the film. This was good and bad for the Salkinds. They got the money they needed to complete the film, but at the same time they were giving up more and more of the profits and rights to the studio. The Salkinds gave up the television and some foreign market rights. Again, the anger the Salkinds felt was pointed at one person, Richard Donner. And although Donner did his best to keep the troubles from the cast, it was so obvious that it was like a dark cloud hovered over them all. Rumors began to circulate. Eventually, things were taking so long, a decision was reached. For now, the second film would be halted, and they would just concentrate on finishing the first one and it was decided not to stick to the original plan of a cliffhanger, but to figure out a way to end it as a standalone film. Donner commented, I decided that if Superman was a success, they'd do a sequel. If it ain't a success, a cliffhanger ain't gonna bring them in to see Superman 2. But they had to figure out a way to end the first film to make it a standalone film. Donner turned to editor Stuart Bard, the man he seemed to have a love-hate relationship with. He was a genius editor, but the two would battle over everything. Donner even fired Stuart a couple of times, and Stuart quit at least once. But it was the tension between the two that made the film into what it became. And before we get into the final edit, I need to mention John Williams. A huge part of the film's success was due to his score. It was fantastic, and one can't hear the Superman theme even today without feeling a bit of excitement. Now, to finish the film, they had to do some fancy editing. The end of Superman flying around the Earth so fast that he turned back time was actually supposed to be the end of the second film, and it was through crafty editing that it seemed to work at the end of the first movie. But it also meant that to finish part two, they would have to write a new ending and somebody would have to direct it. The question was, however, who would be that director? We're going go home, we take 733. Donna, after, he must have been exhausted.
1: I was a young guy. Donna was a young guy as well, but he was in his late 40s at that time. I was in my late 20s. And now I know, having directed some movies myself, what, the exhaustion of shooting a movie, let alone trying to cope with five units, and absolutely, as Dick, this was the great opportunity of his life. This was the... I mean, I know he felt this was like manna from heaven to have such a subject which he felt he was perfect for. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to The Sad Sack.
0: A little bit before I go. This got so long that I had to cut out a few interesting stories like how Richard Donner tricked Gene Hackman into shaving off his mustache by fooling him into thinking that he had a mustache that he would shave off. Or how Marlon Brando wanted to play the part of Jarell as a purple suitcase or a bagel. I kid you not. Brando said that no one knew what aliens looked like, so who's to say an alien didn't look like a bagel? there are a couple of documentaries I'll have in the show notes that you can watch that have a lot more information. So when I return next week, I'll go into the slow decline of the Superman franchise. But now, how about the ending credits? You know, we at PsyCon don't have people like the Salkinds defeat us unlimited funds to make these shows. What we need is your help. You should be one of the good people and support us by visiting scicon.fm. That's C-S-I-C-O-N n.fm And look for the Patreon link at the top. And, of course, sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find many amazing podcasts. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those really help. And remember, all the links of the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at PsyCon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the PsyCon Network my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much and of course a special shout out to all those that repost the show on social media you have a special place in my heart I'll be back in two weeks with part two of the Superman Saga Coffee
1: Coffee with Jeff, I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream, didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff, coffee, coffee with Jeff, coffee with Jeff. coffee with Jeff years go by and lives will have changed sometimes your plans get rearranged he's seen it all and he's weathered it too so Jeff wants to have some coffee with you Coffee. coffee